Welcome back to the Bill Bradley Collective. It is a cold, wet, dreary Saturday afternoon. So we are coming to you from the 06320, but we are remote. And thanks to super producer Brandon's uh, technology, we are doing this uh, via via web conference. You're here. Let's do it. Ed, Zach, how we doing? Quite well. Doing all right. Okay. Today, we are going to discuss William Friedkin's 1994 film, Blue Chips, uh, written and directed by veteran maker of sports films, Ron Shelton. Uh, this film stars Nick Nolte as um, Pete Bell, largely successful college basketball coach, two-time national champion. His program, the fictitious Western University, has fallen on some hard times. <clears throat> the movie is kind of about his decision to involve himself into kind of, you know, I guess what you would consider the dark side of, of college athletics, of amateurism, I'm engaging in pay for play. And we'll get into that in detail. What about this film? I'll start with Zach. Um, broad strokes. What do, what do you think of this movie? Uh, I thought it was really good. I, I loved it. Uh, it was my first time seeing it. Um, I thought that it is a kind of stunning look at, at what college uh, recruiting was 26 years ago and the problems in it. And then also kind of seeing how not, not a lot has changed since then, uh, that a lot of these things that were happening in that movie in you know 94 uh, are things that we see guys getting suspended for now that we see guys losing scholarships for now. Uh, and I think, you know, we'll get into it a little more, but, but the coaches and the, 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 the actors are that they use or the coaches that they use as actors, uh, ha- is kind of a funny twist into, into what the movie goes into, but I, I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, Nolte is just dialed up to 11 the entire time. Uh, and that's just the best Nick Nolte. It is truly a tour de force performance. Um, Ed, what are your, just kind of, again, broad strokes thoughts on the film? I thought that the basketball scenes in this movie were the equivalent of the hockey scenes in Miracle or the boxing scenes in Ali in terms of the ability they showed to kind of get the game, you know, watch the flow of the game in a way that you don't see it from television. And uh, I thought that was terrific. You you remember, you know, I remember that, you know, Friedkin uh, had directed The French Connection and it had that same kind of kinetic power. Uh, so I, I found the movie alternately quite enjoyable and utterly infuriating. And I would love to see Ron Shelton's original script because my guess would be there are some fairly dramatic changes in it. Maybe not, but it occasionally struck me as a film that the studio had a lot to do with. It also has a great score. It, the music throughout the film is phenomenal. Really good. It is. To you, so you mentioned um, Freakin being responsible for the French Connection. Not only that, but also The Exorcist. And these are two of the most acclaimed and important, I think, pictures of the last half century. Um, Freakin's had kind of an up and down career. Those notable hits, some real notable misses, the likes of Cruising, of Jade. He insists, it's Friedkin's insistence that we they cast actual basketball players to perform in those scenes. And you go through some of these games. It is a who's who. It is a litany. You look at late 80s, early 90s, uh, prominent college players that had just entered the pros. The names are George Lynch, uh, Bobby Hurley, Penny, Penny Hardaway, and Shaq. Shaq, 
Shaq and Penny are two of the stars of the film. Calbert but even Chaney. the Calbert Chaney, even the extras are virtually all actual professional basketball players. And I think that does give the basketball scenes that much more credibility. Um, it makes the movie that much better from a quality perspective. Oh, yeah. I think that was one of the big uh, pluses in the, you know, at the end game with against Indiana um, was they had a lot of former college players, former guys out there. And in that whole breakdown of that game, it actually looks like a pretty good basketball game uh, where they're going there. And you realize it's like, oh, it's young Shaq actually playing basketball against these guys. And you remember like, oh, he is a monster. Like he is just a he was an incredibly talented guy at like 22. The idea of Bobby Hurley trying to cover Penny at the point guard spot. Um, I do not believe that game would have been as close as the final score indicated, although Hurley and Cheney were quite good. Hurley on Penny would have been a difficult matchup for Bobby. It's weird seeing Hurley in an Indiana uniform, too. Um, at, this point, it, he's not, he's, at this point, he's in the pros, I think. And It, it was great watching him move around, though, pre-ACL injury. Bobby Hurley was a hell of a player, and uh, it, it did, you know, I, I did kind of afterwards go on YouTube and look for some clips because he was quite a player. So the central, and I, before we move on to that, I do want to give uh, Ed, uh, sorry, Zach, you mentioned the the score, the soundtrack um, between Jeff Beck and Niall Rogers, the constant use of diff- different variations of the blues staple, uh, Baby Please Don't Go, the use of All on the Watchtower, at one of the film's critical scenes, which I'm sure we'll address, um, just a really again, this is a very well made uh, film. It's 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 technically very proficient. So uh, the central conflict, I, I had mentioned that it's a coach who is the program is kind of in decline, and what happens is after he concludes a one of his first losing records, uh, he and his coaches the the day after the week after. They meet with a, I assume he's like a, a sneaker maven, uh, played by Robert Wall. And Robert Wall says, forget about every, you know, you have this list of prospects, forget about them. You want the top two. The top two are Butch McCray, Chicago point guard, played by Penny Hardaway. The other uh, being uh, kind of this weird Larry Bird-esque um, Ricky Rowe, a French Lick Indiana prospect, played by um, Matt Nover. In his pursuit, uh, he, he begins. He begins uh, Coach Bell pursues uh, McCray and Rowe, and quickly finds out that they're not just going to come uh, free. Ricky Rowe's father is looking for a new tractor. Rowe himself is looking for thirty grand. He's he calls himself a a white. Uh, I forget the exact words, but kind of like this great white hope, and he thinks he deserves thirty grand in cash and one of them athletic bags. Butch McCray's mother, played by Alfre Woodard, in a very kind of like understated but very very in, impactful performance. Um, she wants a new life. She's going. She she wants to parlay Butch's talents into getting her family out of the Chicago projects and getting a house with a yard, a job. And um, initially, Bell holds back, wants nothing to do with that. But because of uh, prominent booster, friend of the program. One uh, Happy Kuykendall, that's quite a name, played by, as Ed mentioned, the villainous J.T. Walsh. Um, he decides to to get wet, so to speak. And the so, movie kind of picks off from there. Yeah. So first of all, on the most minor point you made, when the credits were going through, because I've never seen this film before, and Robert Wall's name comes down, 
I wrote in my notes, Robert Walsh slash oh shit, because normally he just brings the film to a dead halt with his non-funny comedy. He has fairly high billing for a guy who's on screen for 12 and a half seconds. So I'm guessing a whole bunch of his scenes got cut. And thank you, William Friedkin. And he um, doesn't even have he doesn't even have a lot of lines in that scene. He has like three lines. Yeah, he mostly just stands there in suspenders. The Alfred Woodard character, I thought at the time, was a great missed opportunity. Um, she's not a bad person. She's she, first of all, it's a great performance because it's always a great performance from Alfred Woodard. But yeah, I mean, she's on screen maybe three minutes, but. You know, when she's talking to the coach and talking about what she wants, you realize that, you know, the only way she has out of her situation is a miracle. And then she had a miracle. She gave birth to, you know, Penny Hardaway. And like, you know, and she said, you know, I have a good resume and everything. You realize she's never getting a job from there. And when I was watching that scene, I thought like, okay. They want something from her. I didn't find her like the father, the the white father or whatever the hell his name is, the Ricky Rowe character. The father's just craven. But it did, I thought that scene pointed to a more difficult kind of moral question than the film ever really bothers to address. And part of it is just the, the power of the performance and the quality of the direction. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I thought that scene was, uh, it, it sits there and has real power. And I'm glad you pointed it out kind of in and of itself. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that, that, that character that she plays, you know, when they're having the discussion and, you know, she basically asks for the house, the lawn, and she makes the ask and Nolte, Nolte's character, you know, Bob Pell looks at her. Uh, and says, you know, what is your husband going to be? What what will he become when he's out there on his own? And she just responds with a millionaire. Yeah, and you remember that, your son become, yeah. Yeah, right. and you remember that, that this scene begins with her unlocking like a bike lock from an extra level of security outside the door where her family lives. And they're all in this tiny public housing, uh, you know, apartment together. And you compare that with Ricky's family, and you're right. Like the father is just a crook. Like the father's just a crook. But he, but he is asking for something that'll help him economically. It, you know, they need a new tractor. It helps him keep up with the farm. But the father's not as much of a crook as Ricky Rowe, who is just like, give me cash in a bag, and I'll and I'll sign with you. Versus Penny Hardaway, where his character is just like, is my mom going to lose her job? Is my mom going to lose her house? Like what happens here? And you realize like the level of poverty differs in the sense of Penny Hardaway was able to help his mom get out of the system of the of the the, the, the life they were living. But now he himself is trapped and they're kind of trapped because it's like what uh, J.T. Walsh's character says. He's like, I own them. I own you. I own them uh, because he, he – he knows that he can take away all of this. And I think it's like a very you're, – you're right, Dad. Like it is a missed opportunity because that could have been like a very powerful undercurrent of the story and it's just kind of left alone. The, the juxtaposition between Ricky Rowe and, and I, his name's Butch. 
I guess. Um, yeah, Butch, right? Butch McRae. Butch, 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 Butch McRae. McRae. Um, and in one of the scenes, uh, somebody said, yeah, his name's not like, his name's not like Jameer Abdul. It's actually Butch, which is another, my guess is, and it's just a guess, that the original script had much more about the racial disparity than actually made it into movie because there's occasionally talk about that and then it just disappears again. But but McCray just trades really one kind of trap for another kind of trap, like being one kind of cage for another kind of cage. He, he's trapped in this poverty and then by the grace of his abilities and his efforts, he has a way out of that but it just he just again moves to another form of trap. And I think, you know, one of the things that you see that the the difference between these two guys is Ricky is just a he's a scumbag. And then there's the scene in the lecture where Ricky's trying to distract Penny Hardaway's character and he's looking at girls, he's looking at this, and he keeps trying to and Penny Hardaway's just trying to pass the class. He's just trying to take notes. And it's also one of the great scenes with Shaq where Shaq just stands up and says the class is culturally biased. And he goes, well, it's English. And it made me remember – it made me think like whatever Shaq's on film of like, was he in the script originally? Is he just kind of a guy who came in to lighten things up? Like, Because he's just kind of thrown in there as an extra. Neon, Neon Boudot, um, the third of this Ballyhooed Pete Bell recruiting class played by Shaq, um, a – I don't know what this guy is. Uh, Slick. Slick tells Pete Bell, he's like, hey, I got this guy. He's a project. He's down in Algiers, Louisiana. Um, so, of course, Bell goes down to Algiers, Louisiana. They take a, like a swamp boat. They end up they end up um, in some deep ward uh, neighborhood where Shaq is playing pickup, uh, Budo, the Budo character. And he's a man amongst boys. He's Shaq. He's fucking 7'2", 300 pounds. They bill him. They say he's 7'4 in the movie. But um, he's – and, and, and this is one of my favorite uh, Nolte moments. The expression he has on his face when he's watching Shaq in that gym, that just sort of – just his, his mouth is agape. And you feel like the camera kind of does it in slow-mo. But it's – it's I don't, I don't think it is slow-mo. He's literally just like – he is so captivated – by what he sees as as Shaq as the Budo character's potential, and this is a this is a guy this is the recruit that's sort of off the radar. He um he had served in Desert Storm. He had gotten what was it, like a five forty on the SAT, which is essentially I think he admits was like on purpose. It's culturally biased, which it is, but um eventually they are, they are able to get him into Western. By recruiting Nolte's ex-wife, an elementary school teacher, played by Mary McDonald, and another very strong performance in this film. Um, I think she's kind of a central character. She tutors Boudot, gets him into um, Western. Yeah. And Although he clearly yeah. could have just passed the, he could have passed the test at any Absolutely. point. He wanted yeah, some incentive. He, 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 she doesn't really tutor him. No. And by the way, Andrew, I actually wrote this on my notes. You know, ask Andrew, does Prop 48 still exist? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think, think so either. Because I, it was if you're I, if you're you had to get 700 on your SATs and then you had a way in even if your grades were great. I thought John Thompson fought it and I think John Thompson was responsible for getting it shot down if I'm not mistaken. Right, it was a culturally biased element yeah. for him. Because clearly 
the neon is is the Shaq character. I mean, is uh, is very very bright, and he's just messing with the tutor. And I always thought those scenes were good too. I mean, here she is, a first grade teacher. She's got this beautiful home. Now, some of that is because people in Hollywood don't understand how middle class people live or lower middle class I, people live. But mostly it's because she's divorced from Nick Nolte, who's worth a freaking fortune because he's a basketball coach. And I think he just let her have all the money. We're going to talk about the morality of Nolte's character later, but save that. That scene with Shaq uh, and, and Mary McDowell when they're in the classroom, and she just looks at him and goes, uh, Noah, p- please remember to not step on the children. And Shaq <laughs> kind of nods. And it, like, it, that, this movie has those like weird little moments that are just like, that are hilarious and make this kind of like, oh, all right, it's a little funny. Like it's 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 it lightens up the darkness because it is a kind of dark film. And and I think we've talked about this. We talked about this on our on our sports movie uh, podcast that the thing Shelton does best is adult male female relationships. I mean, almost better than sports. You get the sense that these are real adults in a real relationship with real ups and downs. Um, you know, and I, I thought, I mean, I thought that part, I thought she was incredible in, in the movie. And I, and I enjoyed every scene that she's in. I was disappointed she went to the press conference because she should have just told the guy to go to hell. But that, that's me. But it, it, her as the moral, as like Nick Nolte's moral center, I think, like really plays well throughout the film. But I think that's also why she has to be at the game because she's also a huge basketball fan. You know, in the scene where he comes over, uh, after the losing season, and she goes, "Oh, you should have pressured the guards more. You should have passed out low." And like she's giving him tips on how to like how to have won the game. It's it's clearly something. Uh, her character is just is pretty complex in a way, and it's a it's a, I just think it's a great performance. Could I just add one more little uh, complaint? The dolphin mascot is the dumbest mascot for a sports team I've ever seen. The friendly, smiling dolphin. Who the hell would be a could you imagine being a football team and having, you know, cheerful flipper as your mascot? I don't know. And they're a top 10 football team, too. They're a top 10 program. Um, they're clearly they're, they're clearly UCLA. Yes. It's a combination of UCLA and Indiana. Oh, yeah. I thought I thought the fact that Nolte always wears the blue sweater was a nod to Bobby Knight in the red sweater. Then he shows up at the end with the red sweater. Nolte... Um, he follows Knight. He he shadows Bobby Knight during the ninety two ninety three season for in preparation for this role. So yeah, it's definitely he's he's playing. There's big Bob Knight vibes um, for sure. So we have talked at length on this podcast about the the sort of need, especially now in twenty twenty, to just compensate collegiate athletes. This movie made in 1994, that's the central kind of struggle there. The way this movie presents good and bad and right and wrong, what's moral, what's immoral, I think it's I think it's complicated, and I think we should try to talk through it. Um, Ed, do you want to kind of well, le- yeah. lead us in with your thoughts? I mean, so obviously from the first scene, it's clear he's Bobby Knight. You know, or just a Bobby Knight knockoff, which becomes much more problematic when Knight shows up in the film. Um, This is 
eight years after the publication of Season on the Brink, where Knight is is depicted as someone who is both scrupulously honest and an absolute monster. You know, that first, you know, one of the problems I had is, you know, when Knight, when Nick Nolte is talking at the press conference at the end and says the best coaching I ever did was, was last year's team. He abuses those players. He abuses them because they're not good enough. Not because they're not trying, just because they're not good enough, which has nothing to do with them, really. I mean, they're just not good enough. Um, and yet somehow that is excused because he feels like, you know, as he says in the press conference, the world doesn't make much sense to me. Only basketball makes sense to me, which isn't a Bobby Knight comment. That's an Al McGuire comment. That kind of, you know, we can talk about good and bad being kind of mixed and there's ways to look at it. The problem is when you have a guy named Happy who walks around with two silicone blondes who are a third of his age, you know, and is played by J.T. Walsh, who literally played the bad guy in every movie he ever made. You might know of a movie, Andrew, where J.T. Walsh was a likable character, but I never saw it. it there's, there's only one. There's only one. It's a few good men. And even yeah. then, he, but he, he fucks up and he ends up killing himself because he fucked up. He is still kind of a villain in that yeah, movie. Yeah, I mean, that, he's a martyr. And so it, it just, you know, when I was, I was watching it, I kept mumbling, they want it both ways. They want to do a, you know, talk about the dishonesty of the sport. But then Rick Pitino, who had already put a program on probation, is in it. Jerry Tarkanian, who is legendarily corrupt, is in it. Jim Beheim is in it, who had already had a team put on uh, a probation. And so it's kind of a it's kind of a wink and a nod to that. And I, that's where I kind of became frustrated with the movie is. To say, oh, we got to get the money out of it. And, you know, and he goes across and he's coaching the kid. Okay, that's great. You just made a movie to make money starring all these people. So don't act like it's not a vehicle to make money. It's a vehicle to make money. You're The movie itself is participating in the vehicle to make money. I mean, I remember when it came out, the big buzz was because Shaq was in it. The point they keep making, and, and they make it early in the film, is that they, it's the cleanest program. You have the cleanest program. You have the cleanest program. All your kids graduate. That they're like a very well-run, not dirty program. And I kind of thought that Bayheim and Patino and Darkadian and all these guys being in it, it was kind of to show that, yeah, they were they were corrupt. You know, I think that's part of the thing of when the Reverend comes out and he says, you know, hey, 50 bucks, highest offer, is to show like, oh, this guy who's clean is still able to get better recruiters than the guys who – who, who are getting money, who are using money and cheating. And I think that's what makes his downfall into eventually cheating uh, even even kind of more, more pronounced. Um, it, it, it struck me as, you know, one of the things he says to Tony after uh, Tony admits to shaving points, which by the way, Tony is correct when he's like, all it, it only affected the gamblers. It didn't affect anybody else. It just affected the gamblers. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's, 
true. I don't disagree with that point. Um, but he looks, but but Nolte's character looks at him and says, "You've you've corrupted the only pure thing we have, or the only pure thing in your life." And it was then I started thinking, I'm like, is this movie saying they shouldn't get paid at all, or that they should get paid? Like, what is? Where is where is this coming down? And then it just kind of never comes down on it. And how is it a pure thing when he's in this tiny little dorm room and Nolte's got the big house and the sneaker contract? You know, he doesn't work for free. And the other thing that that said a million times in the movie is, well, if you know, if I lose, I'm going to get fired. Well, if you first of all, if you have two national championships and four final fours. In 10 years, you're not getting fired. But beyond that, Bobby Knight didn't get fired because he lost. Bobby Knight got fired because he was was like manhandling kids. I mean, that's why he got fired. He was he was he his behavior had become so unglued that it became an embarrassment to the university. And then he went to Texas Tech, you know, immediately. Like they didn't, they wasn't like, well, he's not cheating, so we won't take him. Now maybe it was they felt like with Texas Tech, you had to assume you were going to be cheating if you got, if you went there. But the problem is they set up a dichotomy. We're trying to talk about a moral complicated, morally. I mean, it's not even a dichotomy. They try to set up this kind of somewhat morally complicated universe, but where there's clear rights and wrongs. But the film itself doesn't seem to have that conviction because. They wanted Bobby Knight, like they wanted Bobby Knight in the movie because, hey, we have a movie with Bobby Knight in it. And then you're looking at it, what the hell? Like Bobby Knight didn't get fired because he lost. Like he went 14 and 15 for several years. Like they, that's not why he got fired. He got fired. No, it's fair to say he got fired because he was not only hitting kids, but he was 14 and 15 when he was doing it. Yeah, I, it, a scene where I wonder if it was actually longer is right after the season when uh, one of his assistant coaches, I think it's Mel. Like even hints at hints at kind of using this pay pay players, kind of using this recruiting tactic. And uh, Nolte's character says, you know, oh, that's a road you don't want to go down. Just ask Greg, you know, his assistant coach. And then they just never address like it's the assistant he coach caught? that says that. That's yeah, it's like to Nolte, you don't want to go down that road. The assistant. Yeah, it's like did he get caught at some point? Was, was he a coach? That is that why Nolte? I think that was assumed. Plus, that was Marcus Johnson, NBA Hall of Famer. I wanna, I wanna push back a little bit on, and it's not even a pushback. It's, it's where Pete Bell. You talk about, you talk about how he's got the house, he's got the money, he's got all that. Well, he doesn't have the house. The ex-wife has the house. What he, ha- what he does have is whatever the fuck that apartment is that he goes home to, that is unfurnished. There's a TV. There's a bunch of tapes. There's a fridge with beer in it. That's all there is. He clearly doesn't give a. F- this isn't like this is not. This isn't like Debo Sweeney. This is a guy who clearly is well compensated. Clearly is a legend in the Los Angeles sports community. But when the when the shit hits the fan, and when especially the key scene that Zach mentioned that I wish we got to earlier was Tony. For context, Tony was the best player on the team before the recruits show up. He was embroiled his freshman year in, in a – there was a point-shaving scandal, which he was complicit in. Um, there's a big confrontation, and that's the moment where Bell's like, you can tell, this is too much for me. He coaches that one last game against Indiana. They win, and he can't have it. And guess what? At least he quits. He's like, hey, I can't do this. I, and I think that's an acknowledgement. And, yes, the thing at the end 
with him with the kids on the on the on, on the playground. That's that's too fucking much. That's too sappy. That's too. He doesn't deserve that kind of ending. But at least he acknowledges that this is too much for me. I don't need the money. And he, he kind of, you know. But JT Walsh's character screaming, what, you know, why don't you go try to coach in Bulgaria is such a weird line in the film because it's like, he's one, it's happy is he had just said to him, like, I didn't break any rules. I didn't break any rules. You broke rules. You broke the law. I didn't break the law. And then he like blows up about this as if he's, you know, getting caught out for something and screaming, you know, go coach in Bulgaria. We don't need wimps. You'll never coach here again. And one, I mean, we all know that's untrue. If you get caught cheating as a as an NCAA coach, you'll just get another job somewhere. I mean, John Calipari coaches somewhere, you know, uh, uh, the Seahawks coach who's a 9-11 truther. Uh, uh, Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll still coaches. Didn't Patino coach overseas one year? Yeah, he, he coached in Greece. Yeah, so I mean, in between it, it, Louisville and Iona. It, 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 so, so it was at least prescient. But the <laughs> other thing is that they kind of, you know, skate over is the players who he brings on campus, says he'll do, you know, makes an agreement with kids, then also are now done. And so. You know, two of the four drop out, or three of the four drop out. They all, I mean, Tony's the fourth. Tony graduates, the other three drop out. And it's, you know, they don't get to have the redemption story. They don't get to teach the kids. Their lives are just kind of summarized. And of course, the last two are the kind of smirking, they're in the NBA. Tony's Which playing okay. pro ball and in Europe. Uh, you know, uh, uh, but the, the guy from uh, Reggie Bush was able to, you know, play, took, took cash <laughs> and played multiple years in the, in the NFL and made his money. But that's not true for Tony. I, I do like that Ricky Rowe got nothing. He broke his ankle. He's back on the farm. He got nothing. He is a villain. <laughs> but no, Tony is playing pro ball in Europe, and that's – a four-year player, a lot of times that's kind of, you know. Less so in 94 than now. Sure. A, lot, a lot of more guys played four years than went in the NBA then than now. I mean, now the only one I can think of is Buddy Held. What What did you guys think of uh, Bob Cousy's role as the AD? Um, which, by the way, fun, funny story about that was the scene where he's shooting free throws. He was supposed to not make all of them and he just kept making it and then he switch, switches to his left hand and shoots and that's why Nolte goes like Jesus you can't even miss when you shoot left-handed and he goes oh that guy's still better than like at at shooting free throws than I'll ever be in my life and he's 70 something at that point I thought his performance was really quite good in fact when I when I was flipping through, scrolling through I am uh IMDB while I was you know watching it I looked at this, oh, holy shit, that's Bob Cousy. Because I, I thought he didn't seem like an athlete who was acting. He seemed like an actor. How about some of the just you – know, there, there are some errors in terms of just like – they finish the season, the college season, and then Nolte goes to Chicago to see Penny. Yeah. Like that's not how it works. Like no, the high school season high. ends – right, and, but also in the terms of recruiting, like you don't get your class, your next class after like that – 
previous season ends. So you have the you build the class. Yeah, the tournament is still yeah. happening. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like my, not... favorite, my, my favorite was with Patino saying we're going to trap the one, two, and three, but trap the four and five. I said that's why I never won with the Celtics. Like, why wouldn't you trap the power forward and center? The worst ball handlers as opposed to the best ball handlers. I think it was like a Celtic moment. But no, the big thing was, you know, and bringing them all three of them in at once, it would have all been individual visits. The idea that that no one would have heard of of, of uh, Neon is kind of silly. All of Except that you kind of live with. Um, all of it you kind of live with because, you know, what are they going to do? Do the whole thing with the recruiting and then do one year later? Like, see, there's nothing you can do. One, one, one last thing from my end is uh, Proposition 48 does still exist. It is still uh, an avenue for players to get into uh, college if, like, they have to complete 10 core courses. And, so, like, if they have a 3.0 in those 10 core courses, all they need is a 620 on the SATs to qualify. So it does still uh, – it is still in, in effect. But – if memory serves Prop 48, you didn't play your first year. That's probably the 10 courses. You had to just take classes. You came, you came out as a, as a redshirt year. Yeah, like, I'm guessing that's the 10 core courses probably. Right. They probably take those 10 core courses in their freshman year, I bet. Right. You know, I think Johnny Flynn was a Prop 48 for Syracuse. I could be wrong about that. I'll, I'll, well, I'll check and then it'll be off the air and nobody will care. But – there were, uh, <laughs> we'll do a special bonus five second Bill Bradley collective. <laughs> hey, sorry, Johnny. Um, but uh, the thing that I wish that this, the opportunity that keeps kind of percolating and leaving is the whole uh, racial bias that this whole program, all, you know, George Ravelings there. So there was one black coach, but. You have all these white guys basically shopping for black kids, but they don't have to pay them anything. And then they get paid. Even J.T. Wall says to Nick Nolte, your six-figure sneaker contract, because you get to make them walking billboards. That's 100% true. But that's just completely correct. That's what happens. And that gets covered in the film by Nolte saying, yeah, the rules make no sense, but I follow rules. All right. Good for you. Before we put a bow on it, uh, this morning watching the Fox, Fox's college football pregame show, they have Bruce Feldman is a writer for The Athletic, covers college football for Fox Sports. He's on their pregame show. And he wrote a book 10 years, 10, 15 years ago about he, he it was a season inside Ed Orgeron, who was an assistant, I believe, at the time at Mississippi State and was their top recruiter. And he wrote a book about following Orgeron on a recruiting cycle. The name of that book is called Meat Market. Meat Market. That's not great. Have Have either of you ever heard a word about that sort of? No, I, I've I've never heard of that. But that's it's a, well, it's horrifying. I think I think it's just emblematic. Everything Ed just said about um, and twenty six years later, uh, it's still a very it's that just deeply troubling sort of the culture around like. Could you imagine? Ed Orgeron trying to recruit a kid from, say, California, because you can't understand a goddamn word that guy's saying at any point, and which is why they have so many. I mean, he won the national title with not his players, but man, I, I would like to follow him around all year. I wonder if Feldman ever understood, got to understand what he was saying. 
it's a horrific title and just listening to you what you were saying before just reminded me of like this is we're like conditioned to just kind of i don't know where it doesn't have an effect where that's kind of a gross like it's a gross way to describe recruiting um anyway guys uh would you recommend this movie to our loyal listeners absolutely I, I think it's a great film. Uh, it's a lot of really, really good performances. Definitely, we'll watch it again. I, I think it's it's a movie that's going to be in one of my top you know, top twenties. I um, I would definitely recommend it. I, I mean, first of all, it's just so well made, and secondly, it raises questions. It, it raises issues that college sports are just never, ever, ever going to be able to deal with because it's just baked into the cake. So I thought it was, and it's, and Nick Nolte, who has kind of become Gary Busey. um, (laughs) This is a, when when you watch this performance, oh yeah, he was really good. I thought he was deserving of some Oscar attention, honestly. Um, But uh, with that, I also, I, third the recommendation this is a really really well-made film um and that that raises a lot of questions and may not give you the answers that you desire but makes you think a lot critically uh so that's that's it for this week on where uh bill bradley collective at the movies if you will um So I guess that's three three thumbs up, right? For for three uh, blue up. chips. Three thumbs up. Three thumbs up. And it's a little like- funnier than Caddyshack. Happy Kikendall as a name is fucking hilarious. Uh, And with that, we will. Thanks for listening. We will be with you next week to our kind of more regularly scheduled format programming uh, here on the Bill Bradley Collective.